Thanks, Kathy. Well, for those that don't know me, I'm, I'm Jeff Leader. I'm part of the ministry team here at New Life. I'm very honoured and pleased to be a part of that team. Uh, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses kind of chapter 3, about narrowing in on uh, verses 17 to the end, and just in to snip over into chapter 4, verse 1. So you might like to keep your Bibles open, because uh, I'll refer to that on our way through, but most of the passages I'll have up on the screen. Before we move on, it's good that we actually commit our time to God in prayer. So would you just bow your heads? Our Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we can learn more of you through your word. And Father, we just ask for your spirit's guidance to be attentive to what you have to say, what you want to speak to our hearts tonight and help us to learn and receive what you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight I want to address a somewhat serious topic, the topic of ambition. Ambition. Now, ambition is defined as a strong desire to do or to achieve something typically requiring determination and hard work, effort. Ambition is seen as the desire to succeed, the desire to get to the top, to reach the pinnacle of success, to strive, to work hard, to win at all costs. And an ambitious person is seen to have very definite goals in life. They know what they want and they are highly motivated to do everything they can achieve. That's interesting. We lost that one, Stu. <laughs> okay. Doesn't matter. It does appear that way. Oh, this beautiful little slide of a little fish jumping from one tank to the next tank, getting bigger all the time, which is a brilliant illustration of ambition. But we'll skip that. But there is a cost to ambition, or there can be a cost to ambition. And somebody put together these things. The cost of ambition, late nights, early mornings, lots of associates, but very few friends. You'll be misunderstood. You'll be single unless you are lucky enough to find someone who understands your lifestyle. People will want you to do good, but never to be better than them. And for these reasons, you will do many things alone by yourself so it leads us to ask the question should a christian be ambitious now some people can't see the problem they go to church on a sunday and then during the rest of the week they pursue their own ambitions their own goals they're they're striving for success but on the other hand, there are other people who think that when you become a Christian believer, you have to give up all your ambitions and simply drift through life, taking whatever comes as God's will. And they see ambition as a sin. So the question is, are either of these two positions correct? Are either of these views right? So that brings us to the book of Philippians and to the Apostle Paul. And in, uh, we find that in, 
in chapter 3 there, we find Paul is an incredibly ambitious man. Before he became a Christian, Paul was fiercely ambitious in his desire to persecute the early church. He hunted Christians down, persecuted them, he, he tortured them, he threw them into prison. But after his conversion, he did not lose his ambitious nature. But instead, the object of his ambition changed. If anything, he was even more ambitious. In Philippians 3 and elsewhere, he describes himself as being like an athlete, striving to win a race. See, Paul was focused. He was disciplined. And he did not want to be distracted by anything that would hinder him attaining that goal. Paul was ambitious, and he was ambitious to know Christ. We read that in uh, verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul wanted to know Christ. Now, this was more than just a head knowledge, knowing about Christ. What this, the use of this word, to know Christ, it was a close, intimate, personal relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul was, was determined to strive for all he is worth to achieve that goal. So when it comes down to the question, should a Christian be ambitious? The answer is a clear yes. We should be ambitious. But we are told very clearly that the reason or the object of our ambition must be God, not ourselves. Our dreams, our goals or ambitions must stem from an ambition to know God and to glorify him and not to glorify ourselves. The British theologian John Stott put it this way, Certainly no man can know himself until he has honestly asked himself about his motives. What is the driving force of his life? What ambition dominates and directs him? Ultimately, there are only two controlling ambitions to which all others may be reduced. One is our own glory and the other is God's. Now what this boils down to is that when it comes to our goals or ambitions, we're confronted with two choices. And that is the choice between God or ourselves. Now, Paul was single-minded about his ambition. He wanted to know Christ. And that was the one thing he did. That was his sole focus. It, now, it didn't mean that he neglected every other area of his life. Rather, it means that all else was came second to his overriding ambition to know Jesus. There was a guy called Ignatius of Loyola. I think he was actually a Catholic saint, but he wrote around 1500 AD. Ignatius founded the Jesuits. But he wrote some very wise words, and I quote, it's worth quoting him here. He said, Human persons are created to praise reverence and serve God. The other things on the face of the earth are created for us to help us in attaining the purpose for which we are created. 
Therefore, we are to make use of them insofar as they help us to attain our purpose and we should rid ourselves of them insofar as they hinder us from attaining it. You see, it is wrong to have ambitions for, sorry, it's not wrong to have ambitions for our marriages, our, our family life, our career, our work, or even our ministry. Indeed, it is entirely appropriate that we should, but all such ambitions must come second to our ambition to know Christ. He is our first priority. Our first priority in life. And nothing in our life should conflict with that ambition. I wonder if you remember this guy. Many of you probably don't, but his name is Charles Colson, otherwise known as Chuck Colson. Born in 1931, he served in the US Marines. And when he um, left the Marines, he studied law and set up his own law firm. And then he moved into politics. By the time he was 40 years old, he had become one of President Richard Nixon's closest advisers. Later on, he described himself as a young, ambitious kingmaker, like Nixon, of lower middle class origins, men who'd known hard work all our lives, prideful men seeking that most elusive goal of all, acceptance and the respect of those who had spurned us in earlier years. Charles Colson was branded by the media as Nixon's hatchet man. He was the man who handled Richard Nixon's dirty work. However, during his time in the White House, he actually became a Christian, partly after reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And you can read about uh, how this came about in his autobiography called Born Again. It's worth reading. But later on, his dirty work, dirty tricks campaigns caught up with him and he was tried and convicted for his role in the Watergate cover-up. He was sentenced to three years in prison. After sentencing, when he left the court, he said, whatever happened in court today was the court's will and the Lord's will. I've committed my life to Jesus Christ and I can work for him in prison as well as out. And he did. After his release, he set up the Prison Christian Fellowship. And that's an organisation spread over many countries today. And it's been directly or indirectly responsible for leading thousands of people to Christ. Charles Colson was once heard to say, I was ambitious and I am ambitious today. But I hope it is not for Chuck Colson, although I struggle a lot as a matter of fact. But I am ambitious for Christ. So we come back to the Apostle Paul. Because Paul was also an ambitious man and he was ambitious for Christ. Although no doubt he too struggled with this at times. <clears throat> he saw himself as an athlete for Christ, as I mentioned before. Not looking back, but in verse 13 he writes, Forgetting what is behind, attaining, straining for what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. See, Paul worked hard and he was disciplined. 
and totally focused on the end goal, the finish line. And what's more, he didn't keep looking over his shoulder at what had gone on previously. You know when the athletes are running a race and sometimes you'll see them just before they get to the finish, they look over the shoulder and they just hold up for just that fraction of a second and the other runners come past. But Paul wasn't like that. He was focused on that finishing line. He was just, and he was determined not to be distracted or hindered by things that didn't really matter. He kept his eyes firmly on Jesus. Now the message here for us <clears throat> is that we cannot rest on our past successes or our past achievements. And nor shall we get bogged down by past failures or disappointments. Nor shall we despair over past sins, things we've done wrong in the past, because you'll find Satan whispering in your ear saying, remember you did this? You don't measure up. You're not good enough for God. That's the devil speaking. And we're not to hang on to bitterness over past wrongs that have been done to us. We're to leave the past in the past. That's where it belongs. And nor shall we be distracted from living life as apprentices of our master. Our master, Jesus. And what this means is we need to be disciplined in our prayer life. We need to pray regularly and consistently. We need to communicate with the Lord daily. And we need to be regularly reading and studying our Bibles. How else are we going to get to know the Lord Jesus if we don't read about him and learn about him? How else are we going to know about God and his works in this world from creation through to new creation if we do not read our Bibles consistently, regularly and being disciplined about it? It's not easy. There's heaps of things that will distract us. Not only that, we need to make a priority of meeting regularly, either in church on Sundays or in our life groups during the week because it's important to fellowship with other believers, both to be encouraged and to encourage others. These things are a priority. But don't you find how often things creep in that distract us, to take us away from what should be our goal, our main focus? And this is what it means to be ambitious for Jesus, to know Jesus. And Paul urges the Christians at Philippi to actually follow his example. He worked hard at knowing Jesus. But he was, did not want to be the sole model or example of following Jesus. He expected others to grow and mature. As he says in verse 15, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things Others should share in taking on this role of being models and examples to other believers. And we see in verse 17 that others had already followed his example. And he encourages them to do the same. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul was just not an isolated case of a mature Christian believer that others looked up to. He expected others to take on that role. Now as we move into this passage in Philippians 3, we find that 
Paul was a tough guy. He'd have to be. He experienced all sorts of hardships. He'd been flogged, he'd been tortured, he'd been imprisoned. But through all this, he didn't cry tears of physical pain. Rather, he sang hymns of praise. And Paul's undergirding theme in the book of Philippians is, remember what it is? Joy. Yeah, he rejoiced even when he was going through incredibly tough times. However, none of this reduced him to tears of anguish and despair. And yet as we move on to verse 18, he sheds tears, not of self-pity, but of sadness about the many who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul grieved for them. He shed tears. He wept over these people. We're not told who they are. But they were people who rejected the forgiveness and the freedom that Jesus died to bring. And either consciously or unconsciously, they effectively rejected him and his achievement on the cross. And Paul sees that they were missing out on the resurrection of the dead and their terrible end is destruction. They are dooming themselves to spending an eternity in hell. And hell, my friends, is not a pretty place. It's a place of pain, of suffering that will never, ever end. It grieves me when I hear people saying, oh, I'm not a Christian, it doesn't matter. When I go, I'll go to hell and I'll be able to share a barbecue with my mates. How deluded that is. It's tragic. It will not be a place to share with your mates. Well, it will be to share with your mates, but they won't be doing it any easier than you will be. They are doomed. Doomed to destruction. And for Paul, this is a cause of great concern and grief. And you know, it's tragic that a lot of these people, these enemies of the cross, we're unaware of where they're heading because the, never, the devil never tells us where we're going. He never tells us the truth about our, their destination. And he's happy to lead people along his path. Paul knows. He sees where they're going, heading for destruction, and he grieves, he weeps for them. Now, Paul elaborates a bit. He tells us three things about these people which show us that their ambitions were in an entirely different direction to those of Paul. They were man-centred ambitions. First, oh, I'm sorry. First, their appetites dictate their lifestyle. He tells us that their God is their stomach. For some people, their lives might literally revolve around eating and drinking. But we need not interpret this quite so narrowly. Because surely Paul is referring to those whose God is personal satisfaction, whose lives revolve around sensuality. Now, let's be honest. God made us sensual beings. Jesus himself became flesh. The body in itself is not evil. We were created to enjoy all our bodily senses, whether sight or smell or hearing or touch or taste. 
There's nothing wrong with enjoying food or alcohol, music, exercise, clothes, or experiencing sexual pleasure, as long as they're within the limits that God has prescribed. What is wrong is when these things become our God. They become gods in themselves. And they displace the one true God and Jesus at the centre of our lives. Sadly, it is as true today as it was in Paul's day that much of our world revolves around sensuality. We only have to look at the advertisements in the media. Now, almost all advertising is devoted to food, clothing, sex, and exercise, drink, perfume, jewellery. So much of the advertising world is all about the body. How to clothe it, how to exercise it, how to feed it, how to decorate it, make it smell good. There is a constant appeal to our sensuality. I could have put a whole lot of ads up to illustrate that. But I, I love this one. Sense of ambition. Luxury candles. I can't read that now. <laughs> Luxury candles and skincare company. What a combination. <laughs> the sense of ambition. Says it all, doesn't it? There's that constant appeal to our feelings. Things that will make us feel good, look good from what we eat and drink to where and how we holiday. And, you know, even the banks and insurance companies get into the act when they say, we'll look after you. We'll take care of you. And so many people's lives revolved directly or indirectly around satisfying their bodily desires. But the truth is such ambitions always lead to dissatisfaction. Now this guy, blank. Ah, thank you, Mick Jagger. I was getting a bit worried there. <laughs> Mick Jagger of Rolling Stones fame. His signature song was, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Yeah? Still being played today. You know, Mick Jagger is now 74 years old. He's a father, a grandfather, and I believe he's a great-grandfather. He has eight children to five different women. Mick Jagger is now currently worth about $360 million. He's a friend of the rich and famous, and he has fame, money, and influence. And yet his friend Keith Richards was quoted a while ago as saying that 99% of the male population of the Western world and beyond would give a limb to live the life of Jagger, to be Mick Jagger, and Mick Jagger is not happy being Mick Jagger. It seems that nearly 30 years after the Stones' most defining moment in song, the one certain thing about Mick is that he is unsatisfied still. Coming back to Philippians, the second thing Paul tells us about the enemies of the cross is they boast when they should blush. He writes, their glory is in their shame. They're like thieves who boast about their ill-gotten gains or those who have accumulated great wealth and who take great pride in showing off. 
their acquisitions. Or those who boast of their sexual conquests. Or how how much they've drunk the night before. They've achieved their ambitions and they glory in them. But these ambitions have become gods and these gods are false gods. And then thirdly, their minds are locked into this planet Earth. He says their mind is set on earthly things. Jesus once said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If our ambitions are sensual, our thoughts will be earthly. If our ambition is to know Christ, our hearts will soar into the heavenly places. And earlier this week, we read through Psalm 57. And the psalmist wrote these words. I'll just quote them to you. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Isn't that fantastic? Your heart just gets lifted and soars with the psalmist. So if our ambition is to know Christ, that's what it's like to soar into the heavenly places. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony and its people were proud of their Roman citizenship. But in this passage, Paul points us to a higher citizenship. In this world, Christian believers are strangers and foreigners, fully involved in it, but not of it. Because the Christian believer is a citizen of heaven. Citizenship, you know, carries with it certain rights and privileges. Citizens of Australia enjoy many benefits. I won't go into unpacking those at this point. But as citizens of heaven, we have the privilege of having a close, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. The same Jesus who is responsible for creating this world, this universe. We have access to the resurrection power of God insofar as the Holy Spirit lives within us. We can tap into God's power. And we have a place in heaven, reserved for us, kept for us for eternity in the very presence of God Almighty. And this same God calls us his very precious children. This is a, a, a closer relationship than just being citizens of his kingdom in heaven. We are his children. What an honoured position to be in. And here in verse 20, Paul reminds the Philippians of their true home where their hearts should be set. It was interesting when I was doing the research that the great desire of every Roman colony was to have the emperor come and visit. And from AD 48, the emperor was given the title saviour of mankind. He was revered as a a god, he was worshipped. And when the emperor visited a place, the emperor would bring gifts for the population or he would give them relief from the taxes. And so as the Philippians awaited a worldly saviour, so Christian believers await a heavenly saviour. And Paul writes in verse 21, The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that it will be like his glorious body. Our bodies are lowly. 
in that they're wearing out, if you hadn't noticed. Getting old is something our society finds difficult to deal with. Hence the obsession with cosmetic surgery and, and looking young. The fact is, as we age, our bodily strength declines and our, our, our mental powers fade. Our eyesight, our hearing fails. And we often experiencing, experience debilitating illnesses. And our bodies are also lowly in that we constantly need to battle against temptation to control our tongue and our appetites. And so it's absurd to make a God out of our bodies. The irony is that if we make them our God, our destiny must logically lead to destruction, as Paul says. If we see, and, but if we seek God's glory, and here's the promise, Jesus is going to transform these bodies which are subject to decay and sin, to be like his glorious body, a body which will never age or decay and will not be subject to sinful desires. We're going to be given new bodies, and I reckon that's really exciting. It's wonderful. We just won't float around like ghosts or spirits or something. But it will be very, very different. And although we will... Um, We'll, we'll still be able to know and recognise each other. But we'll be brand new. Paul's intent on helping the, the Philippian believers to lay firm foundations in their relationship with Jesus. And this is where we're going to end. In chapter 4, verse 1, he writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Paul encourages them to stand firm in the Lord. And it reflects one of our church's values, that of becoming enduring disciples of Jesus. And the word used here is the same as that for a soldier standing fast in the face of an enemy surging down upon him or of a combatant in the Roman amphitheater fighting for his life. And you know, in the same way, Christians are condemned to fight for our lives. And against us are arrayed the, the ranks of worldliness and sin. And only unflinching courage and endurance can win the victory against such incredible odds. Paul tells us in this passage how we can not only hold off the enemy, but come through victorious, successful, full of joy and peace with a sense of the presence of God. Paul is writing to a group of people whom he regards as dear friends, brothers and sisters whom he loves and longs for. He can feel the warmth of his love for them. They're his joy, his crown. And the word crown here does not imply like domination. Rather, it carries the idea of victory and celebration. It's a word used of the crown or the laurel wreath given to a victorious athlete at the games. To win the crown was the peak of the athlete's ambition. It was also the word used of the crown with which an honoured guest was presented at a banquet. And such is Paul's feeling about the Christians at Philippi. He led them to the Lord and he watched them grow and mature as Christians. And now they bring him great joy 
He wants to ensure that they will not fall away. So he passes on to them some of the secrets of standing firm in the Lord. So bringing all this together, in this passage in Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells us that everyone is on one of two paths. There are two destinations. One is heading for heaven, the resurrection of the dead and the transformation of our bodies to be like his glorious body. The other is heading for destruction. There are two powers at work. The resurrection power of the Holy Spirit and the power of bodily appetites. There are two possible lifestyles. Those willing to share in the sufferings of Jesus and those who want a lifestyle of ease and comfort. There are two possible gods. Our Lord Jesus Christ or our stomachs. Our sensual nature. And there are two possible attitudes to Jesus. Either friendship at an intimate level or living as enemies of the cross. Ultimately, there are two possible ambitions. Either his glory, Christ-centred ambition, or our own glory, self-centred ambition. Paul says, in effect, I have changed my ambitions. Now I am Christ-centred. This is the one thing that I'm totally focused on. Will you join me? What will you choose? Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes focused on you, that we will not be distracted by worldly things. Help us to be disciplined in our walk with you. Our Father, help us to make that choice and to stay firm and true to the end of our days in this world. And we thank you for that promise of the hope of resurrection life, living in your glory in heaven for eternity. Thank you, Lord, that we are your precious children who you love and who you've given Jesus to die for. And in his name we pray. Amen. Okay. <laughs> oh, Stuart's smiling. That's dangerous. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.